So um, during the season of Advent, we turn to the prophets who can teach us, we hope, how to open up some space between the norm of the culture, which is kind of a sentimental Christmas or a cynical Christmas time. And that's sort of what the, the garland around the lights, it, it represents this clearing away of this space beyond cynicism and sentimentality as space for hope that can tell the truth about the world and yet still hope. And we're in this turn where we've moved from Old Testament prophets to New Testament prophets, and the prophet for today is the central prophet in the New Testament, the prophet Mary, the mother of Jesus. You might think of, not think of as a prophet, but she is, and hopefully by the time we're done, you'll understand why. Her story, of course, centers upon a song, which is fitting. Um, music is such a huge part of Christmas anywhere. I mean, the, the Gospel of Luke, the way he tells the story, their, their characters are constantly just spontaneously breaking into songs, like a Broadway musical or something. They're just like, okay, let's sing now. And um, it, there's a bunch of, like, Mary sings, Zechariah, the angels sing, Simeon sings. It's four songs in, like, two chapters. And in fact, it's kept going since then. The birth of Christ has probably um, inspired more music than any other event in human history. Some of the, the greatest music ever written was written about the birth of Christ. I mean, composers like Bach and Handel and Mozart and Springsteen, who <laughs> totally belongs on that list. I mean, Neil Diamond did a Christmas song. He's Jewish, for heaven's sakes. That's how big this is. Music's a huge part of what we do in this time of year. Kristen actually has satellite radio in her car. And, um, so, and, and she's always listening around this time of year. She loves the Christmas stuff. There's, and there's all these different stations. There's like Christmas pop, Christmas kids, Christmas like religious hymns. There's, and and there's, there's one member of our family who likes the Christmas oldies station. Um, with all the old crooners, like Dean Martin, you know, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, and the big bands and the starlets, and, and it's all like all vibrato all the time on this channel, you know what I'm saying? And every once in a while you hear Bing Crosby doing his boo, 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 like, why does, he, why does he do that in all the Christmas songs? But he does. It's nauseating. But there's this one person in our family who really loves it, and I won't tell you who it is, but there are four of us. And she is one of the four that, who, who loves this. But music is a big part of, of the season and the story itself. And today, we're going to talk about the first song ever composed around the birth of Jesus, which became, in fact, one of the most influential songs in human history. And it was written by a little girl, maybe age 14, 15, who was chosen to be part of God's plan of redemption by conceiving, bearing, birthing, and raising the child who would one day deliver the world from darkness. And it was an unlikely song by an unlikely singer. Because when the angel came to Mary for the first time and told her she was going to bear a son, this was not exactly good news to her, at least not at first. Mary was in the middle of the most important year of her young life because she had become engaged to a man, to Joseph. And the Jewish marriage customs in, in their day were very involved and rigid, and the process had several important steps. The first step is called the betrothal. 
where the groom would travel with his father to the bride's house and they would negotiate a bride price, how much they would have to pay for the bride and then what the bride would bring to the, the match. And then they would all sign this marriage covenant together and after that, they were said to be husband and wife. But then the groom would turn around and head home with his father and the bride would stay with her father and she wasn't even allowed to see other men unless they were men in her own family for the, the whole period of the betrothal, between the betrothal and the wedding, she was secluded at home, which makes, by the way, the virgin birth a little more believable. And for the purposes uh, of one thing, that's why she was at home by herself, for the purposes of the second step, which is the year of preparation, usually around a year, sometimes it was shorter. They didn't really know. But for, for some period of time, the two would live apart and prepare for their marriage. So the bride's job during this time was to prepare a household. Right? There wasn't like a, like a little shop you could go to with your scanner thing and do your registry, bridal registry in the square. They had to make everything that she would need for a household. And um, her aunts and, and her mother and her, her cousins would help. And they would teach her how to outfit a home. And this was, this was a big part of her preparation. They were just going to be like, okay, here's what you do when you're running a household. And she would gather all the things that she would need or make them, all the things she'd need to care for her husband and her kids, plus make like clothes and everything that was needed for the wedding banquet itself. And the, June, the groom's job was similar. He had to prepare a house for them. Usually this meant building just a room on his father's house, or if they were really wealthy, he could build his own house on the father's land. But he was preparing to be a husband as well, and there's a lot more on the line now because there would be a wife and a child that were his responsibility. And also with that came a legacy and, and safety and welfare in his old age. So it was an increase in status for him as well as for for Mary during this season of preparation. But Mary and Joseph would not have set eyes on each other for months. And then came the third step, which is the wedding itself. And they didn't do like big wedding announcements back then. There wasn't like a save the date card that went out. What, what happened is completely unannounced, the groom and his groomsmen would just show up in the middle of the night with torches and a loud shout. And, and they would sound trumpets and they would all shout. In fact, this should sound familiar to like the book of Revelation where Christ is said to come for his bride with a shout and a trumpet sound in, in, the, in the night. So the groom would come and shout. They'd play trumpets and they would raise the whole household in the middle of the night, gather the bride and the family and whoever the attendants were for her. And they would just travel, all of them, in this you know, traveling festival and party back to the groom's father's house for the wedding and for the banquet, which lasted most of a week, four, five, six days. And, and so when the angel came to Mary, she was in that second year of preparation, or in that first year of preparation, waiting, like le leaning toward anticipating the wedding. She wasn't allowed to see other men. She was working really, really hard. Everybody in the household trying to get her ready to go lead her own household. She wouldn't even have left the home because she'd be afraid the groom might show up and she wouldn't be there. So they just stayed there the whole time. And so for this teenage girl, already betrothed, within her year of preparation, working hard, to turn up pregnant, obviously, not good news for her. It was scandalous 
And, and in their culture, um, they were harsh. I mean, really harsh to, to a girl like that. Joseph could just reject her. Her father could disown her. Fathers often did. Her community would most certainly abuse her verbally and emotionally, if not physically. They were within their right. So Mary's whole life is trained on becoming this good wife since she's been really young. And then comes this angel who says, you're pregnant and you're going to bear a son that will become Israel's Messiah and bring salvation to the world. And she knew that if she agreed to this, the life that she was preparing for would be gone. And she could have no idea how it would turn out. She had no assurance if she said yes, no safety. She was just going to have to trust. And so it makes it all the more remarkable that Mary answers this angel by saying, here I am, or here am I, the servant of the Lord. And then these unbelievable words, she says, let it be unto me according to your word. You think about the courage it took to say those words. I mean, in a very real sense, Mary suffered for Jesus before Jesus ever suffered for Mary. And her song of faith has shaped imaginations ever since. You know, you know the Beatles song, When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. The Beatles' let it be is Mary's let it be. That's where it came from. It has that same theme, let it be unto me according to your word. She had to lay down all of the plans she had for her life. She had to abandon her preparation. She had to risk all of the status and security of marriage and, and risk really everything, even up to her own life, to follow God's call. Given her situation, um, her next move was likely undertaken to sort of avoid a scandal at home and the abuse that she would receive. Mary left her father's house during her year of preparation, which was not done. And she went to see her cousin, Elizabeth, also pregnant. And there's this famous scene where Elizabeth's baby leaps within her womb. It's John, his cousin. And, and it's foreshadowing all that, that would um, connect these two men. And this is when Mary sang her famous song, the first song of Christmas from Luke 146. It's sometimes called the Magnificat, which um, is Latin for magnify, which is from the first line. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's an interesting word, magnify. It, to magnify something is to make it larger, make it appear more visible, to expand its presence somehow, its image, in, ho in hopes that we and others can see it more clearly. And of course, every soul magnifies something just part of what it means to be human, right? Your mind wanders to it when you're, you have nothing to do, when you're bored. Your, your desires become shaped around it. Your identity becomes tied to it. Your joys and sorrows draw from it. So it's kind of an interesting question to think about. If we all magnify something, what do you magnify? Alcoholics magnify the bottle. Workaholics 
magnifies success. The hypochondriac magnifies the illness. Um, the, the complainer magnifies the problem. Um, some people magnify money and status and success. Very few of them pastors, mind you. Um, some people uh, magnify sex. Way too many of them pastors. Um, the body, <laughs> approval. I can make the joke. You can't. Um, <laughs> magnify approval. Magnify security. Magnify status and whatever. Everybody magnifies something. But the Christian story says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, magnified the Lord. And this is her song. My soul, it begins, magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor upon the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. It's not actually a completely original song. Mary's song is based in the scriptures. It's based a lot in Psalm 35 that reads, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit has found gladness in God my Savior. She obviously knew this psalm. In fact, her education for girls, their education was to, to memorize and read the scriptures. So her, her song draws on them. It also draws from 2 Samuel 2. He raises up the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. So, so Mary's imagination has obviously been shaped by her years of praying the Psalms and reading the Torah and reciting the history and the prophets. And so when she sang her song, it had the ring of scripture. And this is why it's like not your typical sentimental um, look, everyone, I'm having a baby kind of a song. Like, that's not the song. She sang about the fate of governments, about God scattering the proud and bringing down the powerful. She had in her sights the wicked rulers of the world, wicked and, and wealthy and careless, thriving on injustice, in, enriching themselves and crushing the poor, just brutalizing those who oppose them and, in essence, tearing the world apart. She sang about that. She sang that through her child, God would see to it that those types of people would not rule forever, that God was finally on the move again after what felt like then 400 years of total silence, no prophets. And the first one to ever contemplate this, try to understand this, was this scared little teenage girl who believed that God was moving and using her in a decisive way. And so she's saying, he has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. 
He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Surely from now on all generations shall call me blessed. How did she, how did she sing that? It's interesting. The Gospel of Luke um, makes a dramatic distinction between the way that Mary reacts to this news and this event compared to the rest of the people in the story. I mean, the, sh- the shepherds are told, and it says, the shepherds spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. So the, all the people of Bethlehem were amazed. The shepherds are telling everyone, they're gossiping, and, the, and, and telling everybody what to say. Everybody else, it says, marveled at what was said. And then the angels sang. And, and so the shepherds, that's how they got there in the first place. They came and watched. And of course, the rulers quaked, like King Herod went a little bit crazy. And Mary's reaction is very different from all of them. We're told Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Not like a, a sentimental, like, dear diary, an angel came today, right? It wasn't, it wasn't like that. The word um, for pondered here in, in Greek is symbolo, which is actually how the prophet would discern the word of the Lord. It, it describes the prophet's inner struggle with the meaning of this word that it, it's that has come to them, that's confusing. They ponder it, right? They, they wrestle with it and think about how to bring forth that word then to the world and call other people to follow the word. So symbolo actually kind of tips us off to view Mary as a prophet. This is what prophets do. I mean, often in scriptures, the, the prophet is, um, when they're introduced in, into the text, it usually says, the word of the Lord came to fill in the blank. That's how you knew they were prophets. The the word would come to the prophet who would open themselves up to that word, make space for it, and then symbolize it, um, ponder it, treasure it, and figure out then how to bring that word forth to the people. And through this process, the, the prophet, what made them a prophet is the prophet becomes so joined to the word of God, so part of them, that they just speak it. They just Bring it into the world, almost as a matter of course. This is, of course, exactly what Mary is doing. Mary's doing what prophets do, even down to the language. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's, He's talking about the Word that came to the prophet Mary. And she said, let it be unto me according to your word. She was joined to the word. And then she pondered it, treasured it, and then brought forth that word to the world. And that's why we say Mary's the greatest prophet of the New Testament outside of Christ who brought forth literally the word of God into the world. This unwed, maybe 15-year-old Jewish girl. A New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight, he wrote this. The story being recorded in the Gospels began when Mary began to ponder. And after pondering, when Mary began to tell the story about Jesus to others. It's this combination of what she chose to, to, to magnify the Lord and what she treasured and pondered. And these two things are connected. You know, 
Whatever you treasure and ponder, you will surely magnify. And so it's another good question to ask. What do we treasure? What do we ponder? What occupies our thoughts? After she had uh, drawn the words, the word, into her own body, Mary gestated, pondered, symboled it, and then brought forth that word for the first time as a song. And then again in flesh. But that song she sang was revolutionary, dangerous even. It wasn't some sentimental religious song. It was deeply, deeply subversive and seditious, even incendiary. In fact, it's, it's kind of weird to think about it, but this song has been considered a danger by kind of strong-arm rulers in the world. He has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and then lifted up the, the lowly, filled the hungry with good things, sent the rich away empty. This is, not, this is not good news to those who are sitting at the top of the heap. It's good news for the strugglers, but not for the powerful folks like Herod, folks like Pilate or Caesar. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote this about it. He said, the song of Mary, Mary is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard song, hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. Mary's, Mary's song was, in a sense, a prophecy directed at the powerful. And so ever since that time, like oppressive regimes of the world, they have, they have seen this, treated the, the Magnificat as a threat. The British government, get this, they actually banned um, the singing of the Magnificat in their churches while they were over India. So in India, they, they weren't even allowed to sing the Magnificat as part of the Mass. In the 1980s, the government of Guatemala banned any public reading of the Magnificat. It was deemed politically subversive. Same thing happened in Argentina during a military junta. And can you imagine if this little girl would have been told, a couple thousand years, girl, your song is going to be so threatening and subversive to the powerful that those regimes won't even let people read it or sing it out loud. Although maybe, maybe she already knew. I mean, who was the first person to teach Jesus that there was a God who can bring down human leaders? It was his mother, Mary, whose soul magnified the Lord, who taught him that, that when you start to realize that God has chosen to use the small and seemingly insignificant things to shame the rich and the powerful, who else would it have been but her? And for all of us, when you start to see how God is always ready to lift up the brokenhearted and, and fill the hungry with good things, um, that sort of begins to change the way you look at the dynamics of your own life. 
And suddenly the problems that we face, they start to look a little smaller, you know? Our fears kind of shrink in size. Our personal angst and anger, our relational dramas, our petty arguments, even just our own pain and fear and regret seems a little smaller, you know, maybe a little less scary when we're singing Mary's song that says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Mary sang this song and she taught it to her son because it became embodied in his life. And of course, this is true for every parent, right? At least to some extent. I remember when my boys were little, I, I would rock them and just sing to them for hours. I, I, would, I made up silly songs about each of their names. I would sing old church hymns. I'd sing Beatles songs because I wanted them to be decent human beings. I would sing Stevie Wonder, you know, so they have just a little bit of taste. And I tried to fill their heads with good music. But in a, in a symbolic sense, a deeper sense, I am always singing a song to them with my own life. And that's the song they're, they're truly picking up on. Just the song I sing as I go about life with them. That, that, will so, that song will grow out of what I treasure, what I ponder in my own heart. It's true for all of us. The song that you sing with your life will become what you magnify. And you'll put that song out into the world constantly. It's through the way that you live. Your children will learn to sing it. And you'll teach it to your friends and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers and everyone you come in contact with. The song that Mary sang, it was revolutionary and subversive and good news for the ragamuffins. And in a sense, Jesus was Mary's song, come to life. The angel came to Mary and said, you're going to have a baby. And Mary said, that's impossible. I've never been with a man. And the angel said, nothing is impossible with God. How many times do you think she said that to Jesus? Nothing's impossible, kiddo. Nothing's impossible with God. And one day when Jesus grew up and was teaching, he told the people with God, all things are possible. Where do you think he got that? He was singing Mary's song. Mary sang to Jesus that the Lord blessed her by messing up her life completely. Blessed her, even though she was something seemingly insignificant. She sang, he has looked with favor upon the lowliness of his servant. And even though I look like nothing, all generations will call me blessed because of you, kid, you. And how many times did she sing that to Jesus? When he, when he came to her crying because the other boys were making fun of him, or when he was asking, like, why am I so weird? Something's weird about me. And she'd say, God seems to bless the weird things, man. The weak, the lowly, it's okay. When he went to work with his father and suffered the indignity of the Roman soldiers, she'd just sing to him. He scattered the proud, scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And later, when he scattered the proud from the temple, he was just singing the song that Mary had taught him to sing. 
One time he gave a, a talk that has been called by many the most influential talk ever given in history, the Sermon on the, Bow, on the Mount, teaching people who also came from humble, insignificant places. And he said to them, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Because through me and through my life, through this kingdom that is coming, you will know God is at work in the world through them. And as he said this, you just wonder if he thought, hey, mom, look, I'm singing our song. Mary sang to him over and over. He will fill the hungry with good things. One day Jesus would teach to a thousand or more people and they would be hungry. 4,000, 5,000 of them, mostly peasants looking to be filled. And he would feed them. He would fill them with good things. On the night before his death, he would take the bread and the cup and break it and, and share it with his disciples, saying, this is my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. And you just wonder at those times if he thought, look, Mom, I'm doing it. I'm feeling hungry with good things. I'm singing your song. I wonder how many times she had Jesus sitting on her lap and telling him about the crazy thing that happened when the angel showed up and said, time for a whole new plan for your life. About her, her dreams that just went out the window, right? And her heavenly father who slowly began to reveal this new dream, this new plan, and how hard it was for her to die to the plan that she had for her life. And she would tell him how she had said, most certainly through tears and with great trembling, let it be to me according to your word. And she would tell him, someday your father's going to ask you to do a hard thing, but your father is faithful. And when it looks too hard, just remember your mom, how when she was just a scared little girl, she said yes. And so years later in the garden, when he knelt in anguish praying, the father would ask the son to do a very, very difficult thing that involved laying down his own life for others. And he said, not my will, but yours be done. In effect, he said, let it be unto me according to your word. No wonder he could say it. He was just singing Mary's song. Mary had this deep faith. I don't know how she did it. This deep faith that God would hold her and that even though she was nobody and nothing to anyone, that God was going to work through her to redeem the world. That her God would help her to be strong and to magnify the Lord. And she treasured that and pondered those things in her heart. And they became the lyrics to the song that she sang with her life. And she had to die to her old dreams so that Jesus could be born in her. And she did it. And of course, she's the prophet who first teaches us that all of us have to die to our dreams of dominance and winning, of fame and fortune, dreams of status or perfection so that Christ can be born in us as well. And all of us will magnify something. We will treasure and ponder 
something in our hearts. All of us have a song that we will sing. Many people around us, they sing a song of, you know, success, consumerism, a lot of songs of grievance and revenge, selfish song about me and what I want and what I need and desires. Often it's just a song of sorrow and pain and regret and sadness. We can sing any terrible song that we want. We can magnify those things in our hearts. We can treasure them and ponder them, and then we will bring them forth, giving birth to them in the world. Or we can choose the path that Mary chose and let those things die off and just slip away so that Christ can be born inside of us. And, of course, her life teaches us that if you do this, you will become very vulnerable in the world. Can't imagine any more vulnerable person than than Mary in that moment, just letting all the security and her place in society slip away. This 15-year-old girl pledged to be married, a virgin whose belly just swells every day with new life. And all she had was to defend herself was like this fantastic story of an angel and a promise. She knew nobody was going to ever believe her. Joseph could reject her, her community could shun and abuse her, and yet she had the courage to sing this song. How did she do that? What a wonder. What a great prophet. The prophet Mary, who died to her own life so that Christ could be born in her. We are in the last few days before Christmas Eve, the last few days of Advent, and there's going to be a moment for each of us in which we'll have the opportunity to sing Mary's song, to receive the word of God made flesh, to welcome him into our lives, to say what Mary said, let it be unto me according to your word and to place our hopes in, in what Mary hoped in, what she sang about, to ponder her words, to treasure them, to encounter her boy and, and begin to magnify him in our lives. And that's where we're headed in the next few days. And so um, my prayer for you, Redemption Church, for all of us, is to prepare in our hearts room for him and to prepare this willingness to say, let it be to me according to your word, and to say, my soul magnifies the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do invite you um, to come to us once again this Christmas. As we go throughout just the, the end of our preparation here, just the last four or five days until Christmas Eve. Pray that we would be pondering this story, treasuring the lives of the prophets, Jeremiah, Malachi, John the Baptist, and the prophet Mary. That we would be um, singing Mary's song 
that the words of her song would be on our mind as we ponder them. As we carve out some space just to be more and more still through this week. Waiting and preparing ourselves for you. Pray that this would bear fruit once again on Christmas Eve as we gather to receive the light that's come into the darkness. So lead us on, we ask, this this coming week. Amen. I invite you to stand, and we're going to receive communion. The way we do it at Redemption is we just come forward row by row, and you'll be offered um, the bread and the cup and kind of these COVID-safe packages, and they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ, and you can